everybody, it's Laura Rice of Full Body Frequency. Welcome back, and I'm so excited that you're here, and I'm really excited and really pleased to share this show with you. The Olympics, pandemic, politics, profits, protests, and of course, plus-size athletes. My guest during the show is Adi Ulio. He's an Olympic historian and sports marketing consultant. And he's going to share with you information that you just won't hear anywhere else. But the reason why I'm doing the introduction to the introduction of the show is that when we recorded the show, there were only three Olympic athletes that tested positive for the coronavirus. Since that recording, over 70 Olympic athletes and staff have tested positive. Okay, so what does this mean for the show? Is it obsolete? Absolutely not. Everything with exception of that information is evergreen. So enjoy the show, listen to it more than once if you want to, if you need to, because the information is really good. With that said, I hope that you sit back, relax, enjoy the show, think about some things that you hadn't thought about. And even with information about the Olympics changing daily, even with the speculation that the games may not happen, the information that you hear in this show will be eye-opening. And I hope that you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed recording the show. Also, don't forget to like, subscribe, share this episode with the sports lover in your life. Here we go. Adiulio, welcome back to Full Body Frequency. Thank you, Laura. Good to be here. All right. So here we go. There's a lot to unpack here. And of course, today we're talking about the Summer Olympics. But before we explore them, complications, cost, and history, I want to share a bit of evolving news. Because as of yesterday, three participants, after arriving in Japan, have tested positive for the coronavirus. First in June, two members of Team Uganda, and now a member of Team Serbia. And we know that the Ugandans had been vaccinated with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, according to the Washington Post, the Serbian athlete was sent to a medical facility and due to the timing and separation from his teammates, there will likely be no time for them to train before their Olympic competition. These positive tests bring to light two bigger problems. One, vaccination access in countries around the world, and depending on the vaccine manufacturer, low efficacy rates. Also, as you I'm sure will touch on, Japan's vaccination rate is relatively low. The last time I read about 3%, that might have changed. And its coronavirus cases are rapidly rising. Given this backdrop, let's talk a bit about the Summer Olympics in Japan. It's a very good analysis, Laura. What's happened is this is at the core still an optional sporting event. Mm -hmm. And there are two different camps. You've got the camp that suggested the Tokyo Olympics shouldn't be postponed or canceled. And you have the camp that suggests that perhaps they can stage a safe Olympic Games in Tokyo in 2021. So I I think the two sides are dug in and entrenched in their positions and look for storylines to bolster those positions. Mm -hmm. But there are certain things that cannot be denied and you've touched on some of them. Number one is the fact that cases are in fact rising in the Tokyo area. And so 
Uh, this is the third week in a row in which we've seen an increase of cases in and around Tokyo. Events that lead to the Olympics, such as the Olympic torch relay, have been forced off the main roads because of the rising cases in coronavirus. In other words, the torch relay itself, as it heads to Olympic Stadium for the opening ceremonies, it's usually a very big thing on the way to the games. And mm -hmm. in and of itself, the Olympic torch as a brand is worth about $200 million. So it's not a trivial aspect of the Olympic Games. And so that torch relay has been impacted by this as well. With respect to the athletes that are arriving in Tokyo, uh, the International Olympic Committee has a whole set of protocols that they call rule books that they publish prior to the games. And in those rule books, they outline the different do's and don'ts and some of the precautionary measures that are being taken to keep athletes and officials safe, as well as the local population. Those rule books, I would say, though the last set have been published, those policies continue to evolve. For instance, this morning, as we take this, the Japanese officials, Tokyo officials, are still going back and forth to see the capacity of fans that will be allowed into Olympic venues. Uh, they started with the number of 50% fan participation to now saying that there may or may not be any fans at all. Wow. Depending, yeah, depending on what the trend line looks like as we go into the Olympic Games. So there's a whole level of uncertainty concerning Ban participation. Now, bear in mind, the Japanese authorities already banned foreign spectators from coming to Japan for the purposes of observing the Olympic Games. So there is that as well. So this situation with the Olympics continues to evolve, both as it relates to the athletes, the officials and participants, as well as spectators. And finally, you touched on the virus and the vaccination regimen and routine. The International Olympic Committee has partnered with the Chinese vaccine manufacturer to help vaccinate athletes who want the vaccine who have not yet been vaccinated. They do have protocols for athletes who do test positive either on arrival in Japan or while they're in Japan. Mm -hmm. Some athletes, unfortunately, will be forced to miss events as a part of the, observing those protocols. So the entire situation concerning vaccinations is fluid, it's dynamic, and it's still being worked out. That's amazing. That's amazing. So if you've just tuned in, you're listening and watching Full Body Frequency. My guest today is Adi Ullo. He is an Olympic historian and sports marketing consultant. He just gave us a bit of background on the 2020, now 2021 Summer Olympic Games and some of the challenges faced by Japan, the host country. Now, Idy, a number of people have suggested that given the cost overruns of this game specifically, that there be some consideration about having a permanent host or one or two permanent hosts. What do you think about that idea? That has been floated for quite some time, given the not only the cost overruns associated with hosting the Olympic Games, mm -hmm. but also the cost incurred once the games have been completed. What do you do with these venues? Right. That in a lot of these countries don't get used. They become white elephant projects. So over the last half century, only a handful of Olympics, you would say, have had some sort of financial positivity. For instance, the Barcelona Games in 1992. Barcelona used the Olympics to develop its infrastructure. Only 17% of the budget of the Olympic Games went for Olympic-related expenses. The rest, 83% of the budget for the Barcelona Games, was used to develop the infrastructure 
of the city. So they decided they were going to open the city up straight into the ocean, and they did. And today, Barcelona is the fifth best investment destination in Europe. So depending on how you want to use the Olympic Games, Atlanta in 1996 wanted to use the Olympic Games to elevate its brand as the new South. Right. As a result, Atlanta has developed quite a bit of in-city infrastructure and estimates range that they've been able to gain about a $5 billion balance over the course of the last 25 years since the Olympics were here. And they did manage to turn a modest profit of $10 million. But the vast majority of cities lose as a result of hosting the Olympic Games. Take, for example, Athens in 2004. The Olympics were awarded seven years ahead of time. So Athens got the Olympics in 1997, prior to 9-11. Mm -hmm. And then 9-11 happens, and now there's this huge emphasis, rightfully so, on security at the Olympic Games. So the Athens budget went from about $4 billion to well over $16 billion in the course of that time. And there are some that say that it's the reason why the Eurozone economy collapsed for a short period of time was because of Athens hosting these Olympic Games and the impact it had on the Greek economy. I mean, that's not really been proven per se, but mm -hmm. that's out there. So with respect to Tokyo, the initial budgets were around $5 billion. Conservative estimates have it at $16 billion. Some say it's much more. But Japan really has to take a critical look at this, and here's why. The ruling party and the prime minister, they are now tied to the success of this Olympic Games. I mean, if these Olympics do not go well or we mm -hmm. see a super spreader event, it will absolutely topple the Japanese, the current Japanese leadership. The prime minister and his party are in serious jeopardy if this doesn't go well. If it does go well, it buys them a little bit of time going to the next elections in Japan. So there is that political component. Then you look at media rights. 70% of the income from the IOC, precisely 73%, comes from media rights. So if the Olympics are canceled or postponed, they lose that money. Yeah, sure, insurance kicks in, but it doesn't right. come anywhere near covering the cost of what it ought to be. Mm -hmm. So from a media perspective, the International Olympic Committee is kind of on the hook for developing, for delivering these games. And then sponsorship accounts for almost 20% or slightly more of IOC revenue. So the sponsors are looking at this like, you know what, we've got to be able to get the value of our sponsorship. And some of these sponsorships are north of $800 million per cycle. So there's that financial component as well. So you look at this holistically, you now see why there's a lot of pressure, financial pressure to deliver these Olympic Games, even in the face of a pandemic. So I'm just going to say, cream, <laughs> get the money, dollar, dollar bill, y'all. I mean, it's what it comes down to. It's really about the money. You know, cash rules everything around me. Let's put that aside for one second. There's more to talk about in terms of the economics of the games, endorsements with individual athletes. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But the Olympic Games have also been the site of many protests. Probably the most famous came during the Mexico Games as Tommy Smith and John Carlos each raised a black glove fist during the playing of the U.S. National Anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. And there's so much interest in and consternation about 
activist athletes. For example, we know the most recent, Gwen Berry, and of course, Colin Kaepernick. But folks also get upset about the power of the protest. So what is the history of protests at the Olympic Games? And does Japan have anything to be concerned about? Protests are discouraged at the Olympic Games. The IOC, the International Olympic Committee, has a constitution, if you will, and that's called the Olympic Charter. Rule number 50 within the Olympic Charter specifically prohibits protest or forms of demonstration at the Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. So the history of protests go way back to the 1908 Olympic Games, for example, when the United States team, the flag bearer for the U.S. team at opening ceremonies was Ralph Rose, who was part of the Boston Athletic Club, mm -hmm. which was full of Irishmen. And at the time, Ireland was under British occupation, so to speak. And so as the U.S. team marched into the stadium, Ralph Rose refused to dip the flag to King Edward VII, saying this flag dips for no earthly king or prince. So that mm. was a form of protest, if you will. There are various accounts of that story, but largely that's been the thread of the discussion. At the 1936 Olympic Games, the marathon winner, who was from South Korea, refused to stand at attention for the Japanese national anthem. At the time, Japan was occupying an occupying force in South Korea. So he protested that. And we've seen protests over the years. At the 1968 Olympic Games, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, as part of the Olympic Project for Human Rights, raised black glove fist into the air of Mexico City. And they were expelled from the Olympic Games for doing that. But what they were protesting was the lack of representation of black coaches in the United States collegiate athletic system. Okay. They also protested the, uh, the, they wanted the restoration of Muhammad Ali as the legitimate heavyweight champion of the world and freeing Nelson Mandela as a political prisoner in South Africa. So those were the key tenets of, the tr of that protest. I will add that Peter Norman, who was the white Australian athlete who was also on the podium, wore a pin for the Olympic Project for Human Rights. So he also joined in the protest, though he didn't raise a, his uh, a glove fist. Following that, as a result of that, the Australian Olympic Committee banned Peter Norman for two years. And Peter Norman was never again accepted into the Australian Olympic establishment. In fact, in 2012, the Australian Parliament had to issue a formal apology to the estate and the family of Peter Norman, Norman who died in 2006. They issued an apology for the way Peter Norman was treated in the subsequent years following that protest in 1968. We've also seen countries protesting policy, not just athletes. In 1980, the United States boycotted the Olympic Games that were held in Moscow because of the 1979 Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So Jimmy Carter, US president, withheld American athletes from going to, to Moscow. The United States Olympic Committee established in 1978 under the Ted Stevenson Act, doesn't report to government. It is an, a non-governmental agency. So technically, mm -hmm. Carter didn't really have the power to issue such a ban. However, the State Department could prohibit the issuing of passports and visas for the purposes of going to Moscow. So fast forward to Tokyo 2021. The world has changed. It has changed significantly with athletes now having the shift in the balance of power with respect to how they manage and control their brands. Colin Kaepernick, who is an American football player, 
that played for the San Francisco 49ers took a knee in right. protest, protesting the national anthem and what it stood for. And he was arguing that the United States did not live up to its ideals as the national anthem was supposed to, in some ways, represent. Colin Kaepernick is ostracized and essentially banned from the NFL informally. There is the case of Gwendolyn Berry, who's a hammer thrower, who you referenced earlier. When Berry protested at the 2019 Pan Am Games by raising a fist in the air on the medal podium as she won a gold medal in the hammer throw. So at the 2021 Olympic trials held in Oregon a couple weeks ago, as they were playing the national anthem, Barry, who finished third in the hammer throw, thereby qualifying for the Olympic Games because the top three finishers get to go, while they were playing the national anthem, Barry stood nonchalant on the podium and then raised a T-shirt over her head that said, athlete activist. So there are those that took issue with the protests that Gwen Barry engaged in at the Olympic trials. The United States Olympic Committee has already gone on record as saying that any athlete, any American athlete that protests will not be punished so far as the protest falls under certain guidelines. Those guidelines include not being disrespectful or not in any way impugning anyone else, not interfering with events, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be an interesting dichotomy seeing how the International Olympic Committee handles this, given the fact that the most powerful Olympic Committee in the world, which is the United States Olympic Committee, has already come out and said that its athletes can protest. So what mm -hmm. happens the first time an American athlete protests? What can the IOC do and what will they do, given the fact that the IOC itself lacks real enforcement power in these issues? It relies on the individual National Olympic Committee's to sanction its athletes for rules violations. Since this type of violation, quote unquote, did not come in the field of play in the arena of competition, whereby the if it did, the International Sport Federation for that sport would step in. So for instance, let's just say an athlete took drugs while they were sprinting, the World Athletics Federation would step in and punish the athlete. In this case, this falls outside of the field of competition. So the mm -hmm. IOC must now decide what to do. And quite frankly, there are no standards on the books for uniform enforcement of this type of policy. So it's going to be interesting how athletes around the world take to protesting. And a lot of this started with the public execution of George Floyd. When George Floyd was killed in broad daylight right. by a police officer, it sparked protests around the world, not just in the United States. And we saw athletes from the English Premier League taking a knee, in other words, backing the Black Lives protest movement, taking a knee, backing Colin Kaepernick, who took a knee, right. and so on and so forth. So mm -hmm. it's not just American athletes. It's going to be interesting to see how other athletes decide to protest at the Olympic Games, if they decide to protest at all, and what forms of protest will be acceptable and what won't. Absolutely. And for those of you who don't understand why the Star Spangled Banner is the subject of protest, read and explore the history of the lyrics of the third verse to understand why one of the reasons why Gwen Berry turned her back during the song and why so many Black Americans support her position. One of the things that I will, as a matter of fact, is include the link to the lyrics in this week's show notes. Speaking of protest IDs, supporters of Shakari Richardson have mounted a Let Her Run campaign on social media. Now, during these social media outcries, people have often compared 
Richardson to Michael Phelps. Explain the differences and the similarities to their punishments for drug use. I will first of all say that I'm not a physician. My brother is. I am not. Okay. But I will say that in the case of Shakari Richardson, just to give a little bit of backdrop, at the Olympic trials, it was discovered she had traces of marijuana in her system. Marijuana is a banned substance during competitions, and it can carry up to a 30-day penalty, 30-day suspension. And so now we're so close to the Olympic Games that there are those that are suggesting that since marijuana is legal or cannabis is legal in the state of Oregon, where Shakari Richardson lives, where the Olympic trials were held, that she ought not to have been punished for this. And but if you look at it, it's it's a very polarizing situation in the sense that, you know, what do you do? I mean, the rules are the rules. So should the mm -hmm. rules be changed? Well, perhaps the rules need to be looked at again. But in this particular case, if you change the rules for one athlete, then can you uniformly apply them to other athletes if you change the rules for one athlete? And what exacerbates this is that the athlete herself has come out and said that she smoked. Yes, she did smoke marijuana, but she was coping with the death of the family. Mm -hmm. and this helped relax her. And there are people that say, hey, marijuana does not give you a competitive advantage on the track. Why is it a banned substance? So relate that to Michael Phelps, who also out of competition, there's a picture of Michael Phelps smoking using a bomb. Okay. Right. And so right. he was banned. But there are those that argue that Michael Phelps, though he was, he served the suspension. It was not at the expense of any major events. It was not at the expense of any world championships, any national championships, certainly not the Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. So are those that, are, that feel well that he was given a slap on the wrist, given his importance to ratings, his importance to sponsorship, his importance to the Olympic Games, and so on and so forth. There are those that also argue that Michael Phelps' body naturally produces more, and again, as I mentioned, I'm not a phys physician, but okay. a certain amount of lactic acid that gives him a competitive advantage mm -hmm. and so for that reason people are saying huh well you ban other athletes for you know having and i know we'll touch on this in a moment but having um, artificially high levels of hormones and what have you but michael phelps gets to skate so specifically as it relates to the shikari richardson situation versus michael phelps both were perhaps smoking marijuana but one athlete misses the Olympics. The other one goes on to become the most decorated Olympian in history. And there are those that are trying to make that comparison and saying that this isn't fair, this isn't right. So she tweeted on July 3rd, and I'm sure you've seen this, where she wrote, I'm sorry, I can't be y'all Olympic champion this year, but I promise to be your world champion next. So it appears to me that she's accepted the fact that she will not compete. Again, there are there's this huge groundswell of athletes from Patrick Mahomes, who's the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs, mm -hmm. to others in the sports, business, entertainment, political sphere who are saying, you know what, this there just seems to be a problem with this. The marijuana did not give her a competitive edge. She was smoking it because she had to cope with the death in the family. It is legal in the state that she lives. It is legal in the state that she competed in at the Olympic trials. So there's a problem with this picture. So that is where this is coming from. And it let, it's yet to be seen if the rule will be revised or revisited. But that's the situation with the fire engine. So. 
Okay. Okay. Let's talk about some of the other things that are behind the scenes that many of us don't know about, uh, in particular when it comes to athletes of African descent. It's designed to be inclusive, an inclusive event where your ability carries you mm -hmm. as far as you can go. And the spirit of sportsmanship, human triumph, master higher, stronger is the motto and so on. But there are those that feel that there's some, been some very questionable rulings lately or decisions made that some feel impact athletes of color more than others. For instance, mm -hmm. in the area of swimming, Alice Deering became the first black swimmer for Team Great Britain. She's a British athlete who qualified for the swimming events and will be representing Britain in Tokyo. Now, she partnered with a company called Soul Caps to create a cap for her, a swimming cap for her hair. She has an Afro. The International Swimming Federation has come out and banned oversized caps for swimmers, saying that they don't see that there's a need for that size of cap. Mm -hmm. But there is, because women of color who have Afros have well, more hair by definition. The whole idea behind a swimming cap initially was Caucasian hair tends to go with gravity. It falls down. And when you're swimming, it can get in your face and so on. So the swim cap is designed to ameliorate, to ameliorate that. Well, black hair grows up. It defies gravity, right? So there is a need for an appropriate size cap to fit the black hair. Mm -hmm. So there are those that say that the Swimming Federation might have missed the boat on this as it relates to diversity and inclusion. And this is not a very inclusive uh, sort of move when you ban caps that are designed to accommodate the Afro that are worn by black women. And we also know that when it comes to drowning, studies show that African-American children are three times more likely to drown than Caucasian children and twice as likely to drown as Asian children. 95% of black adults in Great Britain cannot swim. Okay? Mm. So 79% of Asians in Great Britain cannot swim. So you now see that swimming is a sport that really needs more diversity, if you will, if in fact they're appealing to that demographic. Right. So Alex Deering had partnered with a company called Soul Cap to create caps that would be, uh, that would accommodate the Afro and the Swimming Federation has banned those soul caps and they will not be used in Tokyo, barring some sort of a reversal. Now, again, to be clear, this decision is coming from the Swimming Federation, not the International Olympic Committee, but the Swimming Federation governs swimming events at the Olympic Games, and it is the call of the Swimming Federation to make, and they've made this call. Now, the IOC can come out and overrule that call because it's their event, but it's not likely they're going to do so. Another area of concern is in the area of producing hormones, natural hormones. I mean, for instance, the World Athletics Association banned the South African runner Castor Semenya from competing in events. She is the defending champion in the 800 meters, the women's 800 meters. They say that her testosterone levels are elevated and therefore gives her an unfair advantage in that event. And they asked her to take drugs to lower the testosterone levels. And these are drugs that are unproven. We don't know if they're safe. And she refused to do so. And as a result, they banned her from competing in any of their sanctioned events in the 800 meters. Now, what's interesting about that is that for events that are under 800 meters or under 400 meters, so for instance, the 100 and the 200, she can compete in those, mm -hmm. but she cannot compete 
in the 400 or the 800. Now, events longer than 800 or longer than the mile, so for instance, the 5,000, the 10,000, she can compete in those. So this band is very narrow and only focuses on two events, the 400 and the 800, and it so happens the 800 is her specialty. So she will not be able to compete at the Tokyo Games. She tried to make the South African team in the 5,000 meters, and she failed to qualify. So there are those that hmm. feel that this rule was targeted specifically towards her. Right. Just last week, there were two Namibian athletes, two female athletes, who, again, it was deemed that their testosterone levels were too high still in athletics. And so they, too, have been disqualified from the Namibian Olympic team and will not hmm. be going to Tokyo because hmm. – of those elevated testosterone levels. And then the Nigerian 4 by 400 meter quartet was also disqualified from the Olympic Games because of a technicality. They said that during qualifying, one of their the cones weren't positioned right, but it was a technical error. And now mm -hmm. the Nigerian 4 by 400 meter relay team will not be able to compete. So there are those that are sensing a pattern here. And you couple that with what's happened with Shakari Richardson. So you know, I, I'm not so sure what the base, if there is an, a complete alignment in the basis of comparison, but there are those that feel that some of these rules, when you consider the banning of soul caps for mm. Afro, for African-American mm. women, when you consider the two Namibian athletes, when you consider that Castro Semenya, the South African athlete, will not be allowed to defend, you consider the disqualification of the Nigerian 4x400 mm -hmm. relay team on a technicality there are those that feel that we might want to take a look at this thing and see whether or not a certain demographic is being unfairly targeted or singled out. And I would almost argue that with Speedo Olympic swim caps, that there's probably an economic component as well. That's an angle that I would really need to take a look at. I haven't looked at the economic piece. Speedo mm -hmm. is not an official Olympic partner. Uh, they do sponsor individual athletes and they okay. may sponsor some swim federations. But that'd be a very interesting angle to see whether or not you have a competitive situation between companies whereby one of these organized, one of these powerful swim companies does not want an upstart to be a part of the Olympic sponsorship regimen or to be sponsoring athletes. I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I couldn't speak to that piece. Right. And I'm not saying it's one or the other yeah. in terms of if it's the economics of it versus the hair defying gravity and soul caps. I mean, I think it's both and, quite honestly. But that's my analysis. Right. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, it's interesting because we've not seen this sort of band before. There was a time that certain swimsuit that came out uh, back in the day, and these people's the world records started falling left and right when this when they wore the swimsuit, and then subsequently that swimsuit was banned, right, mm. from competition. So mm -hmm. you know, um, but we don't know what soul caps would do, right? Would, would right. soul caps in fact give an athlete some performance edge? We don't know because we've not seen soul caps deployed in Olympic competition or even at the world championships level. So it'd be interesting to see. I mean, it was never given a chance to surface or feature at the Olympic Games. So we won't know if soul no, caps no. gave a competitive edge. One last thing that is, is somewhat related to that. Serena Williams, when she was wearing or attempting to wear compression leggings, during tennis games. So I just think it's very interesting. The, the things that we may need for our bodies, our heads, et cetera, aren't allowed. That needs to be taken into consideration. 
Absolutely. So what happens a lot of times, unfortunately, that the people that make these decisions, you do not have people to look like us in those rooms right. as these decisions are made. And, you know, it's, you know, I mean, I get convening focus groups and doing something, but you really need people that can speak frankly on these issues and know what the impact would be to both the athlete and public perception of your sport when certain decisions are made. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is Laura Rice, and this is Full Body Frequency. My guest today is Idi Ulyo. He leads Idi Sports, a sports marketing, media, and events management agency located in Atlanta, Georgia. And speaking of Atlanta, Georgia, and you did not mention this, but I will. So in the 1996 Olympics, you actually ran part of the torch relay. Tell us about that. Yeah, the torch relay experience was great. In 1996, I did get to carry the Olympic torch. I was actually working on the torch relay. It was my last day on the relay. We went Little Rock, Arkansas. I had a chance to, to run with the torch. Now, over time, the torch relay has increased in value. At those 90, 1996 Olympics, if you remember, the final torchbearer who actually lit the cauldron was Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. And that will go down as one of the seminal moments in Olympic history because it brought attention to the torch relay. So now, it is a big thing to see who that final torch bear is going to be because of the prestige that Muhammad Ali brought mm -hmm. to that accolade of lighting the Olympic cauldron. So we don't know who it's going to be yet in Tokyo, but we're going to keep an eye out to see who it will be. Speaking of potential, let's talk about some other athletes that might have uh, broken some records during the Olympic trials or potentially breaking records that we may have missed because of all the media attention on Shakari Richardson. Is there anyone of note? that you can share with us? On the American team, we're looking at the hammer throw and Deanna Price. I mean, she set and smashed the national record. And there is the shot putter from the United States who broke the world record at the Olympic trials. I think his name is Ryan Krauser. Right. Um, mm -hmm. who, yeah, so we're keeping an eye on them. And uh, of course, American athletes always do well in the pool. And then there's Simone Biles. Simone mm -hmm. Biles is a ratings, ratings machine. She is the gymnast to watch at the Olympic Games this year coming from the United States. And if we go back to track and field, it's going to be interesting to see Allison Felix running in her last Olympics more than likely in the 400 meters. How will she do? And the U.S. team is always, always very competitive in men's basketball, women's basketball. The United States women's basketball team has not lost an Olympic match since 1992, when they lost in the semifinals to the unified team, then the which was made up of the uh, former Russian Republic. So it has had a string of over a quarter century of Olympic dominance. So we'll see what happens there. So it's going to be interesting. What we find at the Olympic Games is that these young stars that we've not really heard of manage to break out and emerge on the Olympic platform. So we're excited to see who these stars will be in Tokyo this year. Absolutely. So speaking of stars, <laughs> one of our favorites in, in gymnastics is Simone Biles. So you mentioned something quite eye-opening to me during a recent conversation about Simone. You mentioned her in the context of the NCAA or the National Collegiate Athletic Association. Share some of those thoughts. Well, Simone Biles is arguably, in fact, inarguably at this point, the greatest gymnast ever. Mm -hmm. So there are those that say the collegiate athletes, for those that don't know in the collegiate sports system in the United States, it's uh, quote unquote an amateur system, even though right. they're on television, and even though they there's a lot of professionalism associated with this quote unquote amateur 
sport, there are those who feel that maybe someone like Simone Biles should get paid for her participation. And not just, I mean, we're just using her as an example, and I have not heard Simone Biles come out and say that, but there are others who feel the Olympic athletes in general who drive ratings should get paid because they do drive ratings, they do make money. And so as of right now, it's up to the individual countries and Olympic associations and committees to pay the athletes if they win. The United States payout for a gold medal is $15,000. A silver gets you $10,000 and you get $5,000 for a bronze. I mean, and that's for a lot of these athletes, that's, you know, it's not the money that makes them compete. Of course, it's just being at an elite level, getting to go to the Olympic Games, that drives the athletes. Amateur sports in the U.S. for a very long time has been professionalized, as I mentioned. And there are those that feel that with this new name, image, and likeness rule that was passed by the NCAA, that athletes who perform in prime time will also be paid now. Because if you look at it, collegiate football and collegiate basketball are very big sports. I mean, they, they rake in tens of billions of dollars for the universities, for the conferences, and for the television networks, and for the sponsors. It's got a tremendous amount of value. So the collegiate football player and the collegiate basketball player are the only actors on primetime television in the United States that don't get paid. If you go to another mm -hmm. channel and you, you're watching a program, all those actors and actresses, even the people on the commercials, are all getting paid, mm -hmm. with the exception of the collegiate athlete who is driving ratings. They're making money, just like any other actor would that's featured on primetime television. You don't get on primetime television unless you're going to be making a lot of money for the sponsors and for the entity that's putting you on primetime television. So there are those that suggest that it's way past time that these athletes got paid for their work. Absolutely, absolutely. So I thought it was just a really interesting juxtaposition if something happened to Simone Biles, God forbid, before the Olympics, NBC would be out of a lot of money. Well, it, it would certainly impact ratings because mm -hmm. the first week of the Olympic Games is primarily gymnastics and swimming as it relates to primetime programming on television. Gymnastics and swimming carry the first week of the Olympic program. And then when the Olympic program moves to the stadium, athletics and track and field etc. That then carries the Olympic program. And in between, you have sports such as basketball, soccer, and some of the other team sport competitions. But if, for instance, a primetime performer, say like an Usain Bolt, or a Michael Phelps, or a Simone Biles, or any other known recognizable Olympic brand, if you will, brand athlete, were to not compete or something were to happen and the networks are not able to feature them on television, yeah, it'd be a huge revenue loss because people are tuning in to see does Simone Biles, for instance, have a new move that she's going to feature or break mm -hmm. out at the Olympic Games. Simone Biles is so dominant. She's coming up with moves that cannot be scored, right? There's right. no scoring system for that degree of difficulty because the move hadn't existed before she's done it, right? So if it's sufficing to say that people will be tuning in, and it's, NBC has already come out and said, that they expect this, ratings-wise, to be their best Olympics ever. And there's no doubt that that's driven in part by Simone Biles. And I'll, I'll just say it, it is driven in large part by being able to see the most dominant gymnast ever perform on primetime television. And we also don't know, but it's likely this is going to be her last Olympic game. So people want to see 
an athlete of this level of stature and greatness compete. So if something were to happen to her, it would definitely impact ratings and it would impact sponsors for sure. If you've just tuned in, you're listening and watching Full Body Frequency. My guest today, again, is Ariulio. He is an Olympic historian and sports marketing consultant. And this show wouldn't be Full Body Frequency without acknowledging some of the opportunities for plus-size athletes competing in the Olympics. Size actually matters, and there's definitely a plus-size athletic advantage in a number of sports. What are those sports? The world record holder in the hammer is a Polish athlete, a plus-size athlete, and she's expected to do very well. And it's going to be interesting how Deanna Price goes up against that level of world-class competition. She has been there before. So let's see if her experience now going to the Olympic Games, if she'll be able to uh, go head-to-head uh, in -head contend for gold medal. We expect that she will. We've also seen plus-size athletes in events such as the shot put, and now rugby on both the men and the women's side. So rugby athletes are also plus-size athletes. So rugby sevens is now an Olympic sport. And so uh, shout-out to the Kenyan team, who's going to be representing Africa in women's rugby. For those types of sports, size definitely has an advantage. But I will also say this, that a lot of these athletes, especially athletes of size, have gone through a lot of their lives whereby perhaps they may not have always been proud of their size and so on, but they have managed to be able to turn size into advantage, not just to accept their size, but to embrace it, to know that, you know what, my size does not define me. And if it does, it defines me in a very positive way. So these are athletes that people could look up to and say, you know, I'm that size. I too can aspire. I too can do things that could land me in Olympic Games or whatever endeavor of life. So these athletes are sensational role models, and we look forward to seeing them competing in Tokyo Games. Before we wrap up, put on your Olympic historian hat and share some little-known Olympic facts with us, or as I call them, ID facts. ID facts. Okay, well, if we go into competition, rowing is the only competition at the Olympic Games in which the winner crosses the finish line backwards. Mm, okay. Yes, okay. So then uh, there's only been one country in the world who had a name change at the Olympic Games, and that's Northern Rhodesia. At the 1964 Olympic Games, also held in Tokyo, the Northern Rhodesia team, which is Northern Rhodesia being a British colony, marched into the Olympic Games as well, Northern Rhodesia. While they were at the Olympic Games, the country gained independence and became the new nation in Zambia. So they marched out of the Olympic Games as Zambia. So it was interesting because at the closing ceremonies, you saw some of the athletes, you know, scratching out Northern Rhodesia and writing Zambia on the, and carrying Zambia placards. So the Tokyo Games gave birth to a new nation, if you will. It's not happened before and it's not happened since. And also, for only the second time in history, we expect more women to be competing at the Olympic Games in Tokyo than in men. Women were not allowed to compete at the first Olympics in 1896 in Athens. And at the 1900 Games, women were only allowed to participate in tennis and golf. We're looking forward to some scintillating performances in Tokyo, if you will. So as far as Olympic facts go, we're gonna, Zambia will be sending the largest Olympic team they've ever sent with the women's soccer team of that nation competing. So I believe that we're going to see a lot of firsts coming out of Tokyo. I mean, Japan first hosted the Olympics, as I mentioned, in 1964. They've since hosted the Winter Olympics in 72 in Sapporo, in 1998 in Nagano. So as the host country, 
we're looking forward to J Japan providing yet another fantastic Olympic Games, despite the challenge of the coronavirus. And that's something that cannot be discounted. So there is that element to the Games, but we're right. also looking forward to the celebratory elements of the Olympic Games as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Adi Yuyo, thank you so much for joining me today, for sharing your insight, your, your knowledge, the history of it all. And for more information about Adi Uyo and his work, visit idsports.com. That's I-D-I-D-Y sports.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at idsports. Would love to have new followers. And thank you so very much for taking the time to talk to me this morning. Thanks again. We'll see you yeah. soon.